0: Morning Restoration Road. It's great to be here with you guys this morning. I'm just excited to preach God's word to you as always. Before I moved to Massachusetts, I lived in Oklahoma. That's where I'm from. That's where I was born and raised. And I had a job there right before I moved up with the church. And my job was to be missions pastor. So my responsibility uh, was to plan out trips uh, for mostly college students to go on to different places around the world. Well, we had this one team uh, that was on their way to Mozambique, and uh, they had met for months leading up to this point, preparing, getting to know each other. And this team had amazing chemistry. And really, out of all of our teams, I would say this team probably had the best chemistry I ever saw of any team. And so part of that is, or be- I guess because of that chemistry that they had, they had planned this dinner to have right before, on the eve of when they would leave for Mozambique. And so not only was it the team members they got together, but they actually invited family members to come in, as many as could be there, just to celebrate this opportunity that these college students So they had invited me to this dinner as well. And so uh, I, I worked that day, but I was actually on my way out of the office, on, the, on, on my way to this dinner, when I get a phone call from the last person I want to, are travel the person that booked all of our flights for all of these teams, she informs me that the South African airport workers' union, or whatever the equivalent of that is, is about to go on strike. And so, our team could get to Mozambique; they probably would have no problem doing that. But there's really there would be no guarantee of when they would be able to return. Yeah. So you can imagine. Uh, the situation, I now have to, uh, between the time of leaving the office and getting to the restaurant, I have to make the decision that this team cannot go to Mozambique, that that is simply off the table because we can't guarantee uh, when they're going to be able to get home. So I now am walking into this restaurant to deliver the news to a team that has amazing expectations of what lays before them, that they get to go to Mozambique the next morning. Well, my responsibility is now, now is to walk into this situation and deliver the news that I had. And not only that, that would be bad enough, wouldn't it? But in this restaurant, the way that it was set up, people were actually sitting at multiple tables around the restaurant. So I had to literally walk around the restaurant and deliver the same news, the same terrible news, over and over and over. If you want to visual, visualize it this way, you can see me walking around this around this restaurant, delivering this news, whereby people are typically breaking down and crying because they were so excited to go on their trip the next day. There was so much expectation that they had for this trip, and I was coming along and I was bringing that expectation down. I was destroying that expectation. Well, this morning we're continuing. In our sermon series, "The Storyteller," we're picking up where Joey left off last week, and that he preached from Genesis three, talking about the fall of man and Adam and Eve sinning against God and what God, how God responded to that, and God responds by declaring a curse upon Adam and Eve. And the the verse that I want to look at this morning to sort of jump off of that is Genesis 3.15, where God is actually speaking to Satan. He's speaking to the serpent, pronouncing a curse upon the serpent. And this is what he says. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This verse and God's words in this verse are known as the first gospel the first gospel in all of Scripture. It's the first time that anybody, and God for that matter, declares the gospel, what he would do to to redeem his creation, to redeem his people. Well, this verse doesn't give us that much to go off of. If we were to just simply stay in this one verse and not move out of it, this would probably be about a four-minute sermon and we'd be out of here pretty quick. But... If we think about it, the rest of Scripture is really a fulfillment of this verse. God here is declaring his overall sovereign intention of redeeming all of humanity. And so we now have a wealth of scriptures to go to if we want to look at this idea of what God was was, was going to achieve in this first gospel, what He declares in Genesis. 315. So this morning I want us to look at two passages that help us sort of add depth to this. The first one I think is going to reveal to us the expectation that people had of this promised Messiah, this character that God speaks of in Genesis 315. And then the second passage we're going to look at is going to reveal the reality of this promised Messiah. The first passage is the expectation. Of him, the second passage being the reality. So, the first passage that I want to look at today is Daniel 7. If you have your Bibles, you can flip uh, to them with me. Daniel 7 is one of, really, one of the most famous uh, passages in Scripture in that it is a vision of the promised Messiah. And there is this title given to the Messiah in this, uh, in this prophecy that Daniel has. Um, that Jesus actually uses to call himself. It's, it's the title that Jesus choo- uh, chooses throughout his earthly ministry to use for himself. And so this passage is very much one of the most famous scriptures. This morning we're going to look at Daniel 7, 9 through 14. I'll read that. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his, his clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were open. I looked then, because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, and as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to, the, to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season in a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory. That all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So, I think it's important for us to have a bit of context of what's going on here, because we are jumping into this passage in verse nine. So, there's obviously eight verses that precede this. Well, in those verses, uh, this it, it, it continues this, <clears throat> or I, I should say, it starts this uh, vision that the prophet Daniel has by the Spirit of God, and he writes it down. And what's happening in this vision is that Daniel sees these four beasts. I call them beasts, and they're called beasts in Scripture because they they sort of look and resemble animals that we might know, but ultimately they're, they're beyond that. They're sort of a spiritual being as well. And so we have these four beasts. We have a lion, one that looks like a lion. At least. A beast that sort of resembles a bear. We have a beast that resembles a leopard. And then we have this beast that isn't even compared to another animal because it's so terrifying and it's so vicious and it's so ferocious. We just know it is sort of this terrifying beast. Well, all four beasts represent a world empire. They represent one of uh, four empires that the world has known to be great and and terrifying and ferocious. The first one being Babylon. The second one being Persia. We have Greece as well. And then we have the terrifying beast resembling that of Rome. The world empire that we know as Rome. Just think about it. These are world empires that we, to this day in 2013, still look back on and say those are some of the most amazing empires, the most dominant, the most uh, widespread empires the world has ever known. These beasts are here to symbolize them. And what's going on in those first eight verses is these beasts are sort of showing off. They're sort of huffing out their chest to show how dominant and how fierce they are and how much people should be scared of them and then we pick up where we did in verse 9 and God shows up God is here God takes his throne he takes his seat as king and I love that in verse 12 and I'll read that again we see what happens to the beast in verse 12 it says as for the rest of the beasts their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and for a time. I love that it's almost this assumed thing that these beasts that are demonstrating how powerful and ferocious and scary and dominant they are are just immediately stripped of all their dominion, of all their authority as God shows up on the sea. I have a cousin that I grew up with that... Uh, is two months younger than me, but he was always at least a head taller than me. I realize that surprises most of you in this room, but he was at least a head taller than me growing up, and still to this day is. He's probably about 6'3 now. So we were growing up. Well, the, the thing about my cousin is that he was, he was super aggressive. He just, he loved to fight people. I mean, honestly, I, I really to this day think he got joy out of fighting people, me included. But I would just break out a headlock, just one of these right here, and bring him to the ground. I don't care how big he was. You could ask him to this day, he would cry like a little girl. Just the headlock come out, it was over. But he just loved fighting people. So we were, we were at my uncle's house this one time, and we had walked down the street, and we had gone to this park. My cousin gets in a fight, and he beats up this kid, and I he mean, dominates him. So we're, you know, he's thinking he's the baddest man alive. We're like eight years old at this point, you know. He thinks he's the baddest man alive, and we're walking back to my uncle's house. And he gets to gets my uncle's house. My uncle's there. My older brother's there. And he begins to tell them about how bad of a man he is that he just beat up this other kid in the park. So what happens is, as does regularly happen in my family, my uncle gets the idea to play a prank on us. So he leaves the room, sneaks around the house, gets to the front door, and just starts banging on the door. Open up! Open up! It's the cops! There's two kids in here, I think, to beat up another kid at the park. Well, you're eight years old. This is the end of your life, as you know it. So my brother is in the room with us as this is happening. He's in on the joke, obviously. So he grabs it. You guys... Hide, hide, you got to get out of here. Get in this closet right by the front door. That's the best hiding spot. So we're now in a closet three feet from the front door where my uncle is out on the outside banging, my brother's having a conversation with this cop three feet from our door. So within the matter of 20 minutes, my cousin has gone from being the baddest man alive to huddled next to me in a closet, ready to pee his pants, because his life as he knows it is over. In this story, these beasts are, are, are showing off who they are. And yet God rolls in on the scene and everything changes. Their dominion is gone, their authority is gone. They're subjected to the lordship of God. And onto this same scene, we then see in verse 13, the very next verse, we see Christ come in. He's not called Christ, but he is this, this, this idea of a promised Messiah. He's called the Son of Man. And look at how he comes in to this scene. I can't think, I was singing about this as I was reading this passage, as I'm, I'm, I'm looking at this, I was singing, what is the coolest like dopest way to roll up into a scene into a party like if you have a lamborghini that's a pretty good way to do it you have like an exotic animal that is a pet maybe that you could ride you come in on that and that works and everybody looks at you and thinks man that's, that's pretty sweet right there what just the son of god comes in on the cloud of heaven's I mean, that sort of trumps, that trumps everything. I don't care if you have seven exotic animals. Clouds of heaven trumps everything. So the Son of Man comes into the situation where God is on his throne. The beasts who were so dominant have been subjected to the lordship of God. But see what happens to Christ in that very same situation. He comes in and he, first of all, arrives in this triumphant manner. But he's then given authority. He's given dominion. He's ushered in to the presence of God. We're looking at this passage because we're trying to understand the expectation that would have surrounded a promised Messiah. So in this passage specifically, we can see that the expectations of what this this promised Messiah, he'd be up here, it'd be up here, it'd be as as cool and amazing as you can possibly imagine. Whoever this promised Messiah is, whenever he shows up, it's going to be amazing. He'll be the dominant king. He'll be superior to anything we have ever known. I mean, if Christ was shown to be dominant over Rome, think about the the way that a typical Jew would think of this promised Messiah. He'd be superior to anything they'd ever known. We can, as we think about that and as we try to um, really relate to that, we can begin to see why people of Jesus' day had such an issue thinking that he was the Messiah. I mean, we see people like John the Baptist of all people having to send his messengers to Jesus and say, Are are you really the one? Like, are you are you it? I want to believe, but you're not you're not matching up to all of my expectations that I had for our promised Messiah. This is John the Baptist that baptized Jesus, that proclaimed himself Jesus' identity at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. But he himself is, try- is wrestling with that because Jesus didn't seem to fulfill this expectation that the Israelites had, the Jewish people had, for their promised Messiah. Now, as I studied and read this text and sat with this text, I, I was challenged and I wanted to challenge us all with this idea that, that this expectation that the people had of who Christ would be. Because sometimes I think we have, we have brought Jesus down from being the Son of Man. We maybe at times struggle with the, the opposite side that we have kind of made Jesus our homeboy and forgot that he sits on a throne and the very earth is his footstool. Like this imagery of the Son of Man rolling in on clouds of heaven, for me, was a healthy challenge at at, at the way in which I look at Jesus, the way in which I reflect on who Jesus really is. So Daniel 7 is a passage that would have fed into the expectation of the promised Messiah. Coming out of Genesis 3.15, God has promised what He's going to do. And from that point forward, there's all of these texts, including Daniel 7, that lead people to have certain expectations of who Jesus or who this Messiah is would be. I mean you can you can really read throughout the Old Testament you can see a, a number of them. Psalm 2 is another great one if you want to look at just to get an idea of what people would think about this Messiah, what he would would be like when he finally rolled in. So that's the expectation. But as I said on the front end, I want us to also look at the reality. And for that, we turn to Isaiah 53, another one of the most famous passages in all of Scripture, really, but especially uh, one of the most famous prophecies of Christ, of who he he would be, and and ultimately, as we now know from history, who he was. So I want to read, I do want to read the whole chapter. Um, This is... Again, Isaiah fifty-three. And as I prepared for this and as I looked at this passage, uh I, I just honestly really wanted us to sit with this text a little bit and wanted uh wanted it to 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 settle on us as much as possible. And so if you don't hear another word that I say today, that's fine. If you don't remember anything that I say uh later this week in this sermon, I understand that that happens. But if you're gonna remember anything, remember what we're about to read. And so we're going to read it. Uh, it's going to be up here on the screen actually for you as well. Um, just sort of soak this in because, again, this is the reality of the promise of Messiah, starting in verse 2. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured, his, poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession with the transgressors. Isaiah 53 enters into a landscape filled by prophecies like Daniel 7 and Psalm 2 and many, many others. There was an expectation of who the Christ would be. And then Isaiah 53, really, uh, about half of the, the end of Isaiah, really speaks of this idea of a suffering servant. Isaiah 53 is really one of the most controversial texts in all of the Old Testament. And think about it just for, just for a second. Why would that be the case? Why would this, this passage that we just read, why would that be controversial? Why would people have issues with that? I and mean, We see... In Daniel seven, this Son of Man that's triumphant, that's dominant, that comes into the scene, and everybody else bends their knee and worships. And we now see Isaiah fifty three speaking of the same character, and yet he's suffering; he's being dominated. I mean, this is something that nobody wanted to hear. Nobody wanted to imagine their promised Messiah. For lack of better words, being ripped to shreds. As I sat with this text, I I just started to write out some, some themes, some things that jumped off the page to me. I wrote down things like condemned, rejected, stricken by God, punished, tortured, killed, familiar with suffering, crushed, for our iniquities. That's the first five verses. And it only it only continues from that point. It doesn't stop. It only continues to portray this Messiah that would suffer anguish, would, would be tortured, would be killed. You can see why Isaiah 53 would be so controversial, so hard to swallow. But as I've said, we now, in in 2013, would say that Isaiah 53 more represents the reality of the promised Messiah than Daniel 7. Now, Daniel 7 is is correct. There's, There's nothing wrong with Daniel 7. But Daniel 7 is pointing to something down the road, somewhere we haven't been yet. Isaiah 53 is pointing to Christ here on earth. And so, the, I think reading 50, Isaiah 53 and, and recognizing that it is the reality of the situation, it all begs the question, why? It all begs the question, why did this promised Messiah have to be the, 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 the character of Isaiah 53 instead of the character of Daniel 7? Why did... God have to intervene in his own creation and come in in the form of Jesus and then die a death as a, a, a lonely, poor criminal that they thought he was. Why in the world is that reality? Why would God do it that way? We well, had to. He had to. You might be saying, well, why do, you know why do you have to? God doesn't have to do anything. God is God. He can do whatever He wants." Well somebody else said this much better to answer this question than I could. I just want to read what he had to say. This is Tim Keller. He says, "God is infinitely holy and infinitely loving, and that's the reason that His grace is so costly." He's so holy that He couldn't shrug sin off. But He's so loving that He couldn't just punish us for it. See, God had to send Christ in the form of Isaiah 53 because somebody had to pay the price. Because He is so holy and so perfect that He couldn't just exist with sin. After Genesis 3, he couldn't just simply exist with sin. That's, that's contrary to his character. But to alleviate that and to take care of that, it'd also be contrary to, to his character to just wipe us off the earth. Because that's that's what would happen if he punished us directly. It'd be, it'd be over. His creation would be done with. And so the reality is, is that this promised Messiah of Genesis 3:15 had to be the promised Messiah of Isaiah 53. He had to come as a sur- as a suffering servant and pay the price that all of us should have paid. As I was working through this, as we always do, we always try to think through what this passage and, 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 and what this, uh, yeah, what this passage means for our life. How do we maybe apply this message to our lives? I thought about that. To be honest, I, I felt like coming up with some practical steps would sort of cheapen what this, what this is saying, and this ultimate reality of the gospel, the God that came in the form of Isaiah 53. So let me just simply challenge you with this. As I was thinking through this and, and praying even this morning, I thought, I just, as far as applying this, I just want this to sink, sink deep into our, into our hearts. I want this reality of the gospel coming to fruition in the way that it did through Jesus being the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, I want that to just sink deep into our hearts. Because if it does, then the application tends to take care of itself. If this is the foundation, if this is one of the blocks of who we are as people and as believers, then the application takes care of itself. So I want to pray that for all of us, for me included this morning.